All right, guys, you're listening to Down the Rabbit Hole Podcast with me again. Um, it's been a really cool year so far. I hope you guys are doing really good. 98.3 KMWV, Salem's community radio station. And um, we're just out here having a good time. It's um, We're still coming really strong on the season. I've been kind of on and off uh, with each episode. I'm supposed to put out an episode every Thursday. And when I do that, it's it's I did I had to step it up. I have to step it up very hard, and and like make content. I've I'm not a content creator, but apparently now I am because now I have to like do stuff every Thursday. Um, and so it's kind of cool now. Kind of stepped everything up. So you guys are just seeing whatever happened from season one to like season four. It's been really cool. So thank you guys for the support. Um, I am right now. I have a really nice guest with me. Really excited to talk to you. Uh, you guys reached out and thought it was really cool. Um, and I'm glad to have you on the show. Can you tell us all, if, again, if they didn't read, I'm assuming my guests don't read the little description. If they didn't read the description, can you tell us who you are? Yeah. Hi, everybody. So my name is George Carrillo, and I am one of the gubernatorial candidates, which means I'm running for governor. And I hope to be the first Latino to ever hold this position for the state of Oregon. That is a big deal because uh, just governor alone, that's a big title. That is a huge title. Okay. Like, and at least, like, I'm going to tell you, you got to explain things like I'm uh, like a five year old. Okay. Well, let me start off like this. Why? Yeah. So that's a great question. You know, every, everywhere I go, people ask me, why is it that you want to be governor? And to be honest with you, you know, the, our system, our government, provides a lot of services to people that need help from the government. Mm-hmm. But it also controls a lot of the other parts of our government, which is our police, our criminal justice system, our prison system, our education. There's so many positions. I mean, when you when you look at it, it's almost about 50,000 positions that the governor controls. And, you know, unfortunately, I see the, the help that our people need. It's just not getting out there to all Oregonians. It's really politically structured. And so the rich keep getting richer and the poor continue to struggle. And when you say our people, do you mean us as Latinos or us as Oregonians? What's your uh, like main demographic now? right? So my main demographic is all people of Oregon. Right. But let's let's be real. Right. We know that Latinos and black people in the state of Oregon are very marginalized. Mm-hmm. We don't receive the same services. We don't have the same opportunities. And the result of that is there's a lot of black and brown people that are in prison right now because of that. Very true. Very true. Um, and have you always been interested into politics or is this something you kind of just jumped into later on in life? Where, what were you like as a kid? I, before I get into these, like, yeah, like, tell me about racism. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, let's take it back. When were you born? Yeah. So I was born in Chicago back in 1979. Shut the front door. Yep. yep. Elgin. Yep. I was I, born in Elgin. Where are you really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was born in Chicago in the city. You know, my parents immigrated over there back in the sixties from Ecuador mm-hmm. and you know, great city. I love it. I miss it so much. The food is amazing. I know Portland's a very foody place, but not like Chicago. No, no Unfortunately, no. you can't find pizza like that here. No. Um, but yeah, you know, I, it, it was really interesting. You know, when we talk about, well, before we get into race and racism and all that, yeah. you know, Chicago back then was a very interesting place. Um, it's a lot different now, but being a kid 
in the north side of Chicago back in the um, mid 80s, you didn't see very many kids like me. You know, I was I was in a private school. I was literally the only Latino kid in the entire school. I didn't last very long up until the fourth grade, and they decided that they said I was mentally retarded and that I couldn't stay in school anymore, that I needed Why? to go. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. They, I, I don't know. It was, it was the weirdest thing. You know, I was only in fourth grade. Yeah. So I literally, you know, got out of school on Friday. My parents told me Saturday that I'm going to a new school because they said that this is what they're labeling me as. Mm-hmm. I wasn't failing. I wasn't doing anything wrong. I wasn't a troubled kid or anything like that. It was just a really interesting time. Um, and, and, and so what were you like as a kid? Were you very shy? Were you very social? What kind of like, because now if you're being labeled as like mentally retarded, was there some sort of like, what triggered that? What, what, what were your, what were you showing at that age? Yeah, you know, honestly, going all the way back, because, you know, when I was a young adult, I wanted to find out what exactly started all that. Mm -hmm. And I went back and got my education records and everything. There was nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. When did you come to that discovery? Um, So I came to that discovery right after high school. I really wanted to figure out what was going on. I knew things for me were different because, like, in my local community, I was the only Latino kid. Right. The only other kid that I ever knew of color was one of my best friends, but he was not Latino. He was um, he was Indian, mm-hmm. actually Pakistani. Sorry, but um, yeah, we were the only two brown kids in the entire neighborhood. Like you couldn't see anywhere any other kids that were of color. Were you picked on because of that? Oh yeah. So what was the prejudice like growing up in the eighties like that? Because that. I feel like everyone nowadays is super PC, which is like, can you imagine that mind frame in school? Then it'd be a lot different. Back, like from what I hear, it was very, very wild, wild west. Like you can say and do whatever you want. Yeah. Well, back then it was, this is normal, right? right? It's normal to be picked on. It's, it's normal to get bullied. It's something that everybody goes through and, and it's perfectly okay. Yeah. That, that was sort of the attitude. When did you come to Oregon? So I didn't I didn't come to Oregon until 2013. Wow, so this is very very recent. Yeah, almost almost uh, 10 years. And were you in Chicago this whole time and then you just made the leap or did you go place to place? Yeah, so my background is pretty unique. <laughs> so, Where did you come from? So I left Chicago after um, after high school. Mm-hmm. I enlisted into the Marines. And so I went into the infantry. And there I was this, you know, this shy little kid, you know, I was pretty intelligent. I was always really good in math and mathematics and was able to get along really well, loved playing basketball, was just very sociable when I was in high school. But, you know, I was still a little bit shy. You know, I was really shy with um, with going out and partying and all those things. It just wasn't my thing when I was in high school. But um, then all of a sudden I went into the Marines and came back from boot camp and I was a very different person all of a sudden, you know, Mm -hmm. had a lot of confidence you know, I was in the Marines. I was young. I traveled all over the world after two tours. Um, unfortunately, I got hurt. And so while I was recovering, they sent me home for about six months. But my parents had retired and they moved out to Arizona. And so I was like, I'm going to go see my parents. Mm-hmm. And so I did. And I stayed there for about six months. And then one day I get a phone call 
And I'll never forget this day because my mom's yelling at me. She's like, Miko, it's the Marines. You got to pick up the phone. I'm like, what? What year was this? This was back in 2003. Okay. Yeah. And so um, they're like, hey, we forgot about you. You got to come back to base immediately. Oof. You're being discharged. Oof. So I was like, no problem. I knew it was happening. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like it was a shock, but I couldn't do anything for six months. I was just recovering. You know, I was didn't know really where I was going to go. And then so I ended up staying in Arizona. I decided not to move back to Chicago because my parents were there and I had already been there for six months and I ended up staying. And so now you 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 went to Chicago and then you did Arizona. <clears throat> Dang, why Oregon then? Like, like I'm just trying to put, I'm just trying to map out everything because, I mean, if anything, why didn't you continue with Chicago or those uh, like Arizona? Like, why? What about Oregon piqued your fascination? And do you have more family here? Is that what brought you here? Yeah. So what happened in Arizona is that my career moved on. I went into law enforcement. Actually, Mm -hmm. I went to college, uh, used my GI Bill while I was in college. I got really interested into law enforcement because I was. My plan was to go be a lawyer. Okay. But during that time, one of my professors said, I think you should try being a, being a cop. He's like, I'll take you on a ride along. So I did. I fell in love with it. But back then, you know, the economy had collapsed. It was, it was just terrible, right? Like people were losing their homes. There wasn't a lot of jobs. Was this the recession of? Yeah, of 2008. 2008, okay. Yeah. And so... I'm like, okay, well, I'm almost done with college. Um, I'm going to try. It was incredibly difficult to be a cop. Everybody wanted to be a cop back then because the economy was just terrible. Mm -hmm. And so there was about 25,000 people that applied for the same job. Wow. And there was just about 68 of us that actually made it. So went to the academy, graduated. Out of the 68, there was only 18 of us left at the end of it after almost a whole year of being in the academy. And then from there, I just continued on and became a sheriff deputy and loved the job. Absolutely just was all about my work. But unfortunately, that does take you away from home, takes you away from family. You give up a lot in order to be a good police officer. What, how dangerous was it for you on a day-to-day? Um, I did speak to someone what a couple episodes back who was talking the same thing, kind of went into law enforcement. Man, that is dangerous. Thanks again. First of all, thanks for your service. That is a dangerous, dangerous commitment. Um, and, and, and what's that like trying to like leave every day and there's still that risk? I guess you have more of a risk not coming home than me kind of thing. What's that like? And how does that mentally help, like affect you at all? It must be some form of trauma there knowing that you can lose your family. Your family can lose you, basically. Yeah, thanks for that. I, you know, that was a difficult part of the job. Mm-hmm. But you wake up every day, you know, coming into work knowing that you're going to try to make a difference every single day. And it's extremely dangerous. And we have to make split-second decisions that either can save somebody's life, you can lose your own life, or you're taking someone else's life. Mm -hmm. And so it's incredibly difficult. It's not easy. But it was something that I really enjoyed. I I always felt a part of the community. I did policing a little bit different. Mm -hmm. I knew that there was one of me. So being a sheriff deputy, let me take this a step back. So being a sheriff deputy out in Arizona, Arizona is huge. I don't think people understand like how 
big the area is Mm -hmm. and how far you have to go from one area to the other. So like in the academy, they always told us, you know, your biggest weapon is your gift of being able to de-escalate, being able to talk to people. It's really not any of the tools on your belt or anything like that. It's really being able to use your mouth. Mm -hmm. And so I really took that to heart because I would be out somewhere. I can be on an emergency situation and I can be the only one on scene and my backup is 30, 45 minutes away. And so um, I had to be very creative. In what ways? So in, in ways that I always kept myself safe. I was always super like hyper vigilant of my area, my surrounding, and never putting myself in a position where um, I could be compromised. I see what you're saying. So, <clears throat> but doesn't that put like if criminals put you get you in a, I guess if you have to deal with criminals, can they sense that in you? Yeah, but you have to always like control the situation a little bit better. You have to know what you're walking yourself into. You know, there's many there's many times where where things were getting ready to happen. And, you know, they knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if you're really paying attention to your surroundings and when you're talking to people, you know that it's okay to back away. You know, just wait, be smart about things. Unfortunately, like what we see with police officers, you know, on TV, we see them using their authority, just, you know, throwing people around, beating them, killing people all of these terrible things that we see on TV. Mm -hmm. And my biggest critique with our criminal justice system is that we really don't train police officers the right way. They have so much backup. They have so many weapons that they can use and they use the law to be able to protect them. And Arizona is a little bit different because the law and my authority didn't mean anything. If it's me against all of these other people, I had to be really smart and intelligent about what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. So brute force and, you know, pulling my gun wasn't necessarily going to save my life. I just needed to be very, you know, like I said, thoughtful of what I'm walking myself into and how I'm treating people. Most times with any sort of criminal, the reality is, is that we're just all people. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to be treated with a certain level of respect. And that's true. That's true. Yeah. So if you do that, you're going to have a different outcome. And and I guess I guess it's kind of, I don't want to be like a very vague, but like your style, were you a good cop or bad cop kind of? So it seems very like you were on the uh, defense versus offense kind of thing. So to be honest with you, I just was the type of person that would just talk to people. Yeah. So wasn't necessarily that I had to be either on a defense or on the offense. I gave people an opportunity to be able to explain what's happening. And that's, I think that's pretty cool. And, and I, like I said, the, mo- the multiple officers that I've talked to, they don't say it just to BS around. Like they're about it. They walk the walk and they talk the talk. Um, and as far as like, even if there is some corruption in the system uh, and then some with, uh, especially law enforcement, if there's some bad eggs, um, I feel like that doesn't, mean all police officers are bad right you know people are saying about defunding the police for example that was one of the big hot topics who's defunding the police i don't think that's gonna help anything you know what i'm saying like you shouldn't defund the police like you're you're people are so quick to cancel why don't we counsel you know what i'm saying yeah and, and you're right like we, we should have more education as far as like more more um more tools to like 
educate people you know what i mean and and i don't know maybe this is just because i'm a third party bystander on this and, <laughs> and, I, and i don't know much about any of this but defunding the police isn't the thing i mean when you see that and they're it's your community police officers law enforcement is your community when you hear those things how do you feel about that so you know i think defunding the police became really a political move mm-hmm. right when you really think about what does it mean to defund the police mm-hmm. it's not that i believe that we need to take away money from the police to just do nothing with it right right but i don't believe that police officers need to respond to certain situations. And I can say that because I was one, mm-hmm. right? We don't have the training to be um, responding to people that have behavioral health issues. We just don't, right? The other piece of it is that do we need to be responding to every single traffic violation or, um, or crime that has already happened? For example, Um, somebody comes and steals something from your back lawn. Well, do you really need a police officer to be tied up for the next hour to two hours for responding to somebody's house, taking pictures because something got stolen out of the back of their yard? Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that was really nice about, you know, Arizona is that we had a system there that for those types of calls, people could actually go on the internet, they could fill out the report, put in all their attachments and it gets assigned to an officer that deals with property crime. And the reason for that is because like when you're a police officer and you start duty and you have already eight to 10 calls waiting for you, we're just being reactive. We're not really being proactive to stop any sort of crime. We're typically responding to crime that already happened. That's not making the community any safer. I like for police officers to know exactly what it is that the community needs them to do and to actually do things that is progressive. So when we think about um, gang violence, when we think about corruption, sex trade, um, illegal drugs, there is a way for police officers to be more proactive, to be able to prevent those crimes, to be able to protect our children, to be able to protect our families and women and um, um, people of all ages that are trying to take advantage of our most vulnerable population. And those are usually criminal entities. We don't have enough police officers doing that because they're too busy responding to calls that they really don't need to be a part of. And so what ends up happening? They respond. They respond to the wrong address. They're overworked. Their judgment isn't quite there yet. They, um, They haven't had the right training to deal with certain types of situations. And they're burnt out. And so then they make the wrong call. And what do we do in the criminal justice system? We keep protecting them. And what ends up happening is a lot of people are getting hurt in that process because we're not using the police the way we should be using them. And and how would you think would be the best way, at least in your experience from what you've seen in your line of work, how do we keep our community safe? And not just the community, but like our community. You know what I'm saying? Like, how do we keep us safe? Yeah. You know, so I think the police department, it needs to be more diversified. Yeah. It, it really is a broken system when you think about, let's say for yourself, let's say you want to be a police officer. Okay. Right. The reality is, is that only about 1% of the population ever gets to serve as a police officer. But a ton, a mass percentage of people actually try and become a police officer. There's a reason why, like if you look here in Portland, minorities really do not get an opportunity to serve as a police officer. 
that criminal background investigator, you could have nothing on your criminal history, but you can be disqualified. But they hold all the power and they don't have to disclose anything. And so that is not a fair, equitable process for anybody. We keep hiring the same sort of person and we keep getting the same result from our police officers. Diversity needs to live and breathe in our police departments. And just because we have one person of color or one black police chief doesn't mean that now we are progressive and we say, yes, we moved on. We're not a racist organization. No, all we did was we took that position and we tokenized it to say we're diverse. But then I and like, so you're right. If I see that and then I know like I have that one or two per- people who look like me, but I know the rest of it is not like me. I wouldn't even want to still join at that at that point. So how, I guess I guess I guess I'm looking at it in my like I just I do like if I see a Latino or a black guy you know in a position of power, there's only one or two guys in there. Like everyone else is is gonna either um, I'm gonna be very shady on it because of what I've seen in the media and what I've seen growing up. I don't know, man. <laughs> It'd be really hard to like want to do that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I guess I guess you're right. Maybe diversifying everything would be kind of a little bit more easier. Um, I don't know. I guess it's such a, that's such a weird thing to say. Um, you know, but I guess I can't, that's why I'm not a cop. You know what I mean? That's why I'm not a, <laughs> you know what I'm So it's, it's too hard to like decipher. Um, how long were you in, um, how long were you in service and did you hang up the badge already? So to speak, have you, are you retired or are you still? Yeah, no. So what happened was, um, I had to make some hard choices, Sure. you know, which was, um, I wasn't from Oregon. And my wife at the time wasn't from Oregon either. I'm sorry, from Arizona. Yeah. We, bo- we both weren't from Arizona. <clears throat> and so um, one of the kids, you know, we have a six-year-old and 11-year-old that really needed to be closer to family. So it was either going to be Chicago or Portland. And so we decided to move up to Portland. Um, it happened really fast. I honestly didn't think it was going to happen this fast because we had a conversation on a Wednesday Four weeks later, we were living in Portland. And I like you. I pull triggers just like that, too. <laughs> All this was a coin flip. <laughs> yeah. So I feel that. Yeah. It's it's crazy to to move your life that fast. Isn't it exciting, though? Like, that's, like, half the battle is, like, my mom and my family are, like, everyone, like, is very, like, we have to plan things. We have to do things in six months. We have to do this, and we'll see where we're at in two years. And here I am just, like... I think I'm going to do a podcast now. <laughs> I'm going to do this now. Uh, on my nine to five, I'm a medical assistant. You know what I mean? And so I, I work healthcare. And the only reason I did that, because when I was 17, I flipped a coin and I said, you know what? I don't know what I want to do with my life. And I'm tired of working in canneries and I'm tired of working in the fields. I flipped a coin and that's how I am. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I do things on the whim and it's really cool that you kind of similar in that sense. Yeah, it, absolutely. Um, but like, at least with that part, I don't want to get like, just, like <laughs> you know, you're still very responsible. You, you're very, you know, but, um, so now you're in Portland. How long has it been since you've been in Portland? And then you, I guess, can you transfer? Is that a thing? No, you can't. Okay. That, that's not a thing. You, okay. you can't transfer. Um, but we ended up, you know, we ended up moving. She got a job here first. Um, and then I came cause to be a police officer, it takes somewhere between 12 and 18 months to get through the entire process. Mm-hmm. And when I got here, it was sort of a shell shock for me. Oh, yeah. Um, That's where I was like, what did I get myself into? Um, Oregon is very different. And so 
being brown and being in Oregon, it's uh, there's a transitional time. It's and a little bit of everything, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, it really was. You know, when I when I tried out for you know law enforcement organizations, it was it was interesting to say the least. Um, I, I've never, I don't think I've ever been treated that way, um, ever. <laughs> you know, I I went to this one interview, and I met a sheriff. And um, he was having a conversation with me and he said, where, where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm from Arizona. And then later on, they heard that I was from Chicago. And he goes, so you lied to me. And I said, no, I didn't lie to you. I, I said, you know, I was born and raised in Chicago, but you asked me where I was from before, which this was just a casual conversation before the interview. And I said, I was, you know, sheriff deputy down in Arizona. And so from that moment forward, he kept calling me boy. Oof. And I didn't understand why. And I, you know, I politely asked him if he can please stop calling me boy. And then they asked me to stop being so aggressive and just to answer the questions. And I said, oh, my God. OK. <laughs> I said, OK, I see where this is going. Yeah. I went to another interview where they were just very so much in my face. And I was like, is this for real? Like, I've never seen this before. Like, right. Like I, I was a police officer. I've been through this process before. I've never have experienced this. And it just seemed. And at first I was like, maybe they're just testing me. Maybe they're trying to test to see if I was going to say something. But as I started to get to know other people of color, they're like, yeah, that's kind of just the process that they go through for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I decided that I was like, you know what, if that's their process, I don't want to be a part of those organizations. So I said, I'm going to just, you know, look for work in another field. And that's actually when I went to the Department of Human Services and became a case manager there. How long have you been doing that? So I've been doing that that's for... That's total left field, by the way. Yeah. That's total left field. Like yeah. Your mentality has to switch on and off like that. How? Well, you know what? It wasn't really like a switch for me. Yeah. Um, because being a police officer and then being like a case manager, it's, it's the same thing. You're trying to help people, mm -hmm. right? You know, earlier when you asked me, was I a good cop or as a bad cop? Yeah. Right? I just talked to people. And this was the same thing. I'm just talking to people to help them try to get their lives back on track. And really, that's that was my primary job. And then I went into management services. So I, I went into management six months after I joined um, Department of Human Services. And then I've been doing that for the past six years. And I just slowly moved up the ranks. And now I'm a senior executive at the Oregon Health Authority. Wow, congrats. That's a big deal. Because like six years, you turn moving from a different state and changing your whole career field and now you have something else like most people give up why didn't you give up you know what or why I, did you not even give up why didn't you stay comfortable yeah you know i don't like staying comfortable yeah no i think when you become too comfortable you get complacent I think, you know, for me, I've always been the type of person that has always wanted to help people. I want to make the world a better place, right? I know that I can't do that by myself. And so I really enjoy bringing people along for that ride mm -hmm. and saying, you know what? We can do this. We can change the culture. You just need the right leaders in place and things start to fall into place. And that's honestly what's helped me move up. Um, it hasn't been the great work that I've done. It's been the work that everybody else has done, and we've been able to do it collectively. You know, I, I, I tell people all the time, you know, I'm not special. I'm just a regular person. I just have different roles and responsibilities. 
I'm just good at navigating relationships, helping people identify their strengths and weaknesses and helping, you know, using really my platform, my experience, because I have a lot of experience being in the military, you know, being a police officer, you know, working up through the ranks and in government service. It comes with history. It comes with plenty of mistakes that I've made that I've been able to learn from. And I take that platform and I try to bring everybody with me. I mean, that seems like really good qualities to have in a person. But like now you're because now you're running for governor, right? Yep. And what's that process been like? And when did you realize when was that switch for you that you were like, you know what? This is the level I'm trying to get at. Because <laughs> that doesn't happen over. I mean, maybe for you it did happen overnight, but how does that happen? Yeah. You know, I knew that one day I wanted to get into politics, Okay, but I just didn't see it in the cards right now. You know, I was like, I'm going to eventually when I retire, I think it'll be, you know, my next career in retirement that I'll go into politics and start doing that. But, you know, now becoming, you know, a senior executive, I clearly see what's wrong in our, in our system. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I thought it was just like, okay, you just got to get in the right position. You have to have like the right amount of um, responsibility and like a scope of work in order to really make this change happen, you know, throughout the state, the higher I go, the more complicated it gets because it's not that simple. Our politics come into play. People that have too much power and too much privilege that they're just doing it for themselves. They're not doing it really for the better or the good. They may have originally started with that intent, but now they have just become corrupt with their own greed and their own personal interests that they don't understand what it means to really work with community. They don't understand that we're not the boss, that the people that need our services are the boss. And so honestly, it was like this switch. I was just done with the system. And I said, the only way that I can control and make things better for people. And what I mean by control is controlling the environment of the government was to be governor. That's the position that the leader needs to be able to set the tempo and hold accountability because the reality is the truth is there is a lack of accountability in our system. hundred percent. People get to do whatever they want and people keep getting elected because they can raise a lot of money. We don't see that money, though. No, <laughs> like we don't see that money. At least I don't. At least the the people I talk to and, and everything, we we're the same thing. Where is this going to? What are we doing? Where's the community aspect of it? I mean, it sounds good on on Facebook and Instagram, but like I feel like the community doesn't see a lot of that. Uh, what sets you apart as far as being? Now I'm talking to you about your, your if you're talking cool with it. I want to talk about your candidacy and everything. Yeah. What sets you apart? You know, like, like I, I, I'm all for it. Don't worry. I'm gonna tell you right now. I think it's cool. Latinos all the way. Like, first and foremost, I will go for anybody who looks like me and has a similar story like me. But at the same time, a part of me says, no, no, no. You, just because they look like you, like they can't. You can't give them that right away. So I might sound a little standoffish at the point, but like, for example, I work in healthcare. How countless times I've talked to Hispanic people and just like, yo, cut me a break. Give me a little something, something. Give me, you know, free healthcare. Give me, and I get it. Like, healthcare sucks. Healthcare sucks. 
but I can do and bend the rules, which I have, and I bend the rules to where I can. But when you come at me with a, ah, come on, you know, you, you're just like, give me a little something, something. I don't like that. You know what I'm saying? So, like, what sets you apart? And I guess, because I don't know much about politics, how could you win people over like me who don't believe in politics like that? Because they don't, they're not educated enough into it. Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I don't want people to vote for me just because I'm brown. Yeah. Or because I represent something that, um, because I may look like them or talk like them. Um, just like I wouldn't want somebody to vote for me just because I'm a, I was a police officer because I was a veteran. I want people to vote for me because the words that I'm saying, you know, are truthful. Cause I tell people all the time, like there's no two versions of George. Mm-hmm. There's not this version of George. That's a politician or this version of George when he's working at, you know, OHA or this version of George when he's at home. There's just one. And I'm the same way at home that I am, whether I'm, you know, talking to you here on the radio or I'm playing with my kids. It's all the same person. And so when we think about politics, right, people have really tried to go away from politics. They don't want to talk about it. They don't they don't want to bring it up. They don't want to get involved. But the reality is, is that if we don't get involved, and we, if we continue to think, well, my vote just doesn't count, then I promise you nothing will change. That, that and those people who, who don't want to talk about it, they're the first ones to complain. <laughs> like they're the first ones to be like, why is everything so bad? Well, because you didn't want to talk about it and you, you ignored it and swept it under the rug. That's why things are so bad. Um, and I guess it's kind of like, I guess education is key. If you can educate people on different subjects, I feel like they can learn and, and make informed decisions i don't know much about politics but i do know a lot of people hate kate brown mm-hmm. a lot of people hate kate brown and when i did like my like um i did a little bit of research on you and i did see a lot of your you know your merits on your website cool website by the way i, like, I thought that was very cool though just the design wise amazing um but like i guess how, what makes you separate from her in in that sense you like if you were to theory if, i guess if everything goes according to plan um how are you not like her and, 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 and to benefit the community? Yeah. So this is the harsh reality of our system is that when you're a politician, you're in bed with somebody mm-hmm. because it takes money to win an election. And honestly, it's not that it takes money to win an election. It's that that's the narrative. Mm-hmm. That's what they keep telling you in the media. Right. And they measure a candidate by how much money they can raise. Well, I'm not a fundraiser. I'm not trying to be a fundraiser. I'm trying to be the governor. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you look at the candidates for this election cycle, it's well north of over $7.5 million that have been raised. $7.5 million. What is everybody doing with that money? <laughs> right. Yep. We are asking people with low income to donate. Donate to my cause to believe in me. Super PACs, people with special interests, the rich and the wealthy, take out your checkbooks, write us checks for a hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, a million dollars to show people that I'm the best candidate. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make you anything. You just buy your way into it. I mean, if anything, exactly. Yeah. And that's what happens. If we look, let's look at what happened. Kipsnick, he was booted out as governor. 
Next person in line was Kate Brown, mm-hmm. right? She didn't have to do anything in order to gain that position, not to diminish her position. She was secretary of state, but to be the governor, that's something totally different. She was able to walk into that position. When re-elections came up, the Democratic Party, what did they do? They she didn't backed put in her. that work, though. Right, exactly. Okay. They, they backed her, right? Everybody's checkbook opened up for her to be and continue to be the governor, right? Same thing happened when re-election time came. No real contender really went against Kate Brown. She won the primary, went into the, into the general election, and she almost lost. Now her term is up. Now Tina Kotek, Speaker of the House, all of Kate Brown's funding got passed over to now who she believes is going to be her predecessor. So you see that you see that wealth, you see that system keeps getting passed on from generation or from term to term. The reality is people like you and me, we don't have that sort of generational wealth. Mm-hmm. We don't have that level of connection. So remember when you're saying earlier, it's like, you know, people are asking like, ah, oh, come on, you know, like hook me up, you know, blah, yeah. blah, blah. What do you think happens in our politics? Wow. What the hell, man? You just blew my, th- my thing out of the water. <laughs> blew- <laughs> now I should probably go back and help those people. Like, no, I mean, like, damn, like, cause I looked at it from a selfish point of view. I looked at it, it was like, I'm here for the community, but at the same time, like, I also don't want to help your personal needs. So I guess maybe, I guess, I guess you're really definitely making me, making me into a believer on that part because you, I guess you're, everyone hates this woman. I'm not going to lie. I, I, I talk, there's a lot of hate towards her and I guess I never understood why. I don't know why. Um, uh, and, and I hear so many different stories and different things and, 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 and it's just like, why do we hate this person so much? What did she do or what she didn't do? I guess. Um, do you think if you say, if you get into this, why would we hate you? Why would we find a reason to hate you? Like if you can target why people don't like you, you'll have a better understanding of what not to do. Right. So why do you think people would hate you if they had an opportunity to? Well, I think not everybody's going to like me and that's okay. Right. For whatever belief that they have, whether it's because they don't feel that I'm giving them enough attention or maybe it's just because I'm a Democrat. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's just because of the fact that I'm a Latino or maybe it's because of my skin is brown. I have no idea. But when I see people, I see the beauty in people. Regardless of whether you like me or not, I'm going to continue to fight and advocate. That's what I consistently did. You know, when you think about being a police officer, I'm going to take us back to that moment. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter who was in front of me. If you needed my help, I was there to help you. And I would do it at the expense of my own life. Now being governor, I do the same thing. The only difference is is that I have the privilege of not losing my life, but understanding that the decisions I make may cause other people to lose their life. It's just as important. But the reasons why I wanted to do this is to be able to help protect people and give people better equitable opportunity. You know, when we kind of go back to this political system thing and why people would hate me or not like me or hate me or like me, you know, when I was talking about campaign finance and what separates me from the other candidates is that I'm honestly, I haven't tried to raise a lot of money. I've been 
doing everything off of a grassroots campaign. I've been using social media. I've been using my own personal money. There have been people that have donated. I've used a small portion of that so to continue to be able to market my message across. But now what we're doing is we're taking that money and donating it back to the community. We're taking it and we're putting it into nonprofit organizations. Every week we're giving back to the community. So where others keep saying, give me, give me, give me, give me to, to prove that I can be governor, I'm saying, you know what, I'm going to take that money and I'm going to give it back because that's the right thing to do. That's no politician's going to do that. And the reality is, is that I'm not a politician. I'm just a person that wants to make a difference and be able to use the, the, the privilege and the power of the governor to do the right thing because I will not be in anybody's back pocket. So if there's one thing I can say is that they won't hate me because I'm in bed with special interest because I'm not. That's bold. But I think what has me worried now is you're right. If there's this generational wealth, how do you break through now? Because if, if you have a lot of things going against you right now, then my dude, like a lot of things going against you. And I guess I relate back to how I wanted to start in radio. Nobody was giving me a chance. Yeah, I had to fight for that because I, one thing I will notice in radio, especially like around like local radio, uh, I, I was I wanted to DJ for a little bit, for example, a little backstory. I wanted to mm-hmm. DJ, and they they made in a different radio station. They just made me clean the toilets or whatever, and they were like, "Nah, you can't do it. We'll <laughs> let you do it. We'll make you think you're gonna do it, but like you're not gonna do it." And I was annoyed, and I said, "You know what? F it. I'm gonna do my own podcast." And then, <laughs> and then I got recognition by the other local radio stations. You know, shout out to 98.3 for seeing that, and they're like, "Yo, we like what you're doing. You know, come through and, and show us what you got," kind of thing. Which is cool. And it gave me that opportunity to, to, to show what I'm about. But if I didn't have that drive and that little thing that pushes boundaries, I don't think I would be anywhere. Because they're very, you know, if there's a generational wealth of radio, that's it. Like, they all pass each other along. They all know each other. They all, like, don't let each other yeah. in. They don't let new people in at yeah. all. You know, and that pisses me off to this day. I hate all of you, by the way. And, like, <laughs> I will fight you at Safeway. I don't care. Um, but, like, I, I, I see that. So how do you feel like you can break that mold? Radio and politics are a huge difference, you know, different, you know, things. But... How are you going to get into your radio station, so to speak? You know, how are you going to get in? Because, like, man, that's that's a lot. And you know, Kay Brown and all these people, big names, big, big names in the area. Um, it is doable. Are you scared? No. You know, uh, there's nothing to be scared of. Yeah. We're just all people mm-hmm. that we all have a different of opinion of how we want to help people. Um, I think some are more corrupt than others Mm -hmm. that there's a reason why I'm not supporting another candidate and why I'm running. Um, You know, it's doing things like this. It's getting on the radio. It's, you know, knocking on people's doors. It's getting on social media. It's getting in front of, you know, community members, community leaders. It's doing everything that I've said I've done in my career. I'm just doing that now, um, trying to convince people that I can be governor. You know, th- when, when we think about these politicians, right, a million dollar check isn't going to win you one vote. But if I can convince you and your listeners to vote, that means more than a million dollars. That's 
man, you're just a bold guy because that, that that's uh, that's kind of like I like that style of thinking. I really do. I really, really do. And I guess I guess just to kind of like, you know, praise you for a second. But I, I see a lot of we're very similar in that sense. I see a lot of myself in you. And I think that's pretty cool. Um, you take what you I'm sure people put you down and, 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 and don't really want to F with you at all and don't really want to what you're about. But you convince them. You know what I mean? And I think that's, you know, with Perrier, I had to like, they, they would not respond to my emails. They would not even listen to them. And I was like, yo, I don't want equity in the company. I don't want anything. Now I do actually. But like, <laughs> but like they would not mess with me. Like two years ago, I was like, you know what? Send me product and I'll give it out during my interviews and I'll do whatever I can to earn your trust. They sent me coupons. You know, they were like, you're giving people coupons. <laughs> And then after like six more months of like trying and trying and trying to convince the PR person, they sent me cases of his stuff. And I was like, oh, cool. And they're like, here's your sponsorship just to give this out, which is why I have a lot of period on deck. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So like I do, I, I like that mentality. I like that mentality that you don't have the money for it, but you convince people with what your actions are. Um, I think that's pretty cool, man. I think that's that's really cool. And I hope my listeners do take that to heart that they're like really, really taking it in soaking it in you know um but as far as being a governor though right i guess i want to i want to get more into that you get elected so you beat that you get into it what kind of policies are you pushing what kind of uh what what kind of change are you going to make for us as far as a whole community not even just like brown black but just as a whole oregon what do you plan on like changing yeah that's a great question you know there's a lot of things that the governor can do that they don't need permission from like legislature um, or anything like that. The first thing I would do is I would hire the right cabinet, that it's a diversified cabinet, that it looks like the people that we are currently serving mm -hmm. and that my cabinet wouldn't be 98% white. Um, it would definitely be diversified. The next thing is that our government reform needs to happen right now. We don't lead by example. We treat our own employees sometimes like garbage. We don't take care of them. We think that we have some sort of domination or power or control of them because they work for us. There's a reason why we have unions, because we don't offer basic human rights sometimes to them. And our system right now how we manage programs and how we manage people, it's based off of liability, which means what will get us sued and what won't get us sued. That's not a system that's going to flourish. That's not going to give equitable opportunities to people, right? Because we're only looking out for our own interest. And is that the end game is to get more opportunities to people? Absolutely. Um, and, I guess, I guess why hasn't that happened yet? You know, because it's all a system about power and control. Mm. It's about making sure that all of us continue to stay in power. So part of that government restructure is that there'll be community action committees, which right now we have some, right? We have some oversight committees for all areas of, you know, of our government that have oversight over our programs, whether it's, you know, the criminal justice system or it's food stamps or it's child welfare or it's, um, you know, oversight over OHA. We do have those committees. They're typically non-paid positions 
and they held no power or authority to make any changes. It's basically a check mark saying that we're working with community. That is the biggest change in our government that will happen when I, when I become governor, is that those positions will be paid positions. They will report to the office of the governor. They will have the resources that they need um, financially, so that way they can work with their local community members of what are the needs of the community. My directors will take that information and implement the strategy that they have brought forward. There's no negotiation. There is no, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. No, you are being held accountable to the oversight committees and I will hold you accountable to that. There will be a checks and balance system back in our government. For our human resources department and all of our employees, I will consolidate all of the human resources departments into one. There'll be a separation of power between myself and all of the, and the new human resources department. Um, so that way they can hold anybody in my cabinet accountable. The mission will no longer be to mitigate risk to the agencies. It will be to do what is right for all Oregonians, which means we will no longer make decisions based off of, are we going to get sued or not? No, we're going to make the right decision. And if we created harm, then we need to pay up. Wow. Um, that's a lot to that. Okay. Is, is it a lot to ask? Is it a lot to ask for a governor to do that? Is that, is that, is that a complicated thing to do? It's not complicated at all. It's just the Why fact that they make want. it seem so complicated. They make it complicated because they want to continue the status quo. Yeah. I don't, I want to make the system better. I want it to work for us. I mean, other than Kate Brown, who's one of your biggest, uh, do you have allies in this? Like, who's your competition? Or are you, is there? Yeah, so Kate Brown can't run again, right? right? So it's Tina Kotet and Tobias Reed. Okay. And the only reason they're my main competition is because the media says they're the main competition. Right. Because she was the Speaker of the House and Tobias Reed was former Secretary of State. Um, I don't know what they've done in their campaign, but when I, you know, to your listeners... So what if Tobias Reed has raised over a million dollars or if Tina Coates has raised over a million dollars? Look at their social media accounts. Look to see what they're actually doing in the community and actually working with people. Or are they just doing side deals? Being a politician, I am not the type of person that's going to sit here and do a whole bunch of side deals and things in the cover of darkness. Other people that do those are criminals. And I don't consider myself a criminal or a politician. I do things right in the light. So in my Facebook, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, I have more than 52,000 people that have followed me since I started my campaign, which I started on February 3rd. All of the Democratic candidates combined put together do not have my social media presence. And I will tell you that I am not a social media wizard, you know, and I'm, you know, I don't have a social media background. When I say that I'm literally talking to people, reaching out to people, sending the right message and having people believe in what I'm saying because the words that I'm saying are truthful, right there, it's right there. Over 52,000 people. Amazing. I mean, I guess when you reach that type of level of people, I mean, the social media backing is a huge thing. 2022, that's a very huge thing. Um I mean, if you just talk, there has to be a secret to it. What are you doing? I mean, like, what are you doing? How are you getting to these people? It sounds like you're just in the trenches all the time. 
That's what I'm doing. I mean, I'm literally just trying to do shows like this, mm -hmm. um, speaking with leaders in the community, um, speaking with just the regular everyday people, doing interviews, just sort of what we're doing right now and just talking to them, bringing them, you know, to the table, using my platform to give them a voice. And I guess now, like me, I, I, I'm aware of, of, of local elections and things, but I don't. Like I said, I don't know. I'm probably one of those people that are like, ah, okay, Brown, I don't know. What do you do? I don't know what you're doing, but I don't know what to do. How can someone like me who doesn't have the education and, and like how to get involved? How do I get involved? How do I join the cause? How do I make a change? How do I get people like you to make a change? Yeah. So reach out to my campaign. So if you go to www.georgefororegon.org, you'll see my website. Um, if you go to Facebook, and do the same thing, search George for Oregon. Uh, you'll come up um, to my Facebook page, which is all linked to the rest of my social media accounts, and just reach out. Um, my phone number is listed there. My email address is also listed. Uh, when people call me or email me, I respond, and I have these conversations. Even if it takes me you know, talking to one person at a time, I do it. That's a pretty bold move. I mean, you're just nothing but bold, man. I think that you're not like... When I expected a politician, obviously we have this stigma of what politicians are. I don't feel like I'm talking to a politician right now. I don't feel like somebody who's, you don't annoy me. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. You don't annoy me. Uh, and usually when people talk politics, I get very frustrated because I don't understand what you're saying. And I think it has to do with you. You try to like sugarcoat things with, uh, with, with terms and things that I wouldn't probably would go over my head. Uh, and I think that's pretty cool. That's what I like about you is you explain things like I'm, like I'm a five-year-old. Um, I think if anything, you can reach more people that way. I think that's the way to go, right? Theoretically. Yeah. Well, you know, politicians never answer your question, though. None. None. <laughs> that's, None. that's what's frustrating for me. I bet you if I me. ask you a question, you'd probably answer me right now. Okay. <laughs> let me ask you another question. Are you, what do you describe yourself as? Republican, Democrat? Uh, wh what is your descriptive party? So my party is the Democratic Party. Okay. I struggle with the Democratic Party here in Oregon uh -huh. because it's not the Democratic Party that I'm accustomed to. How's that? You know, we've lost our way. You know, we feel that we have to control all branches of the government in order to make change. That's not what a Democrat really believes. You know, a Democrat, yes, there's things that we believe. We believe in equity. We believe in equality. We believe in the opportunity for people to achieve um, a higher quality of life that the rich should not continue to get rich off of the, off of, the, um, off of the poor. We believe in a government and a system that provides social services to people in their time of need and that we protect our population. We don't do that anymore. We do these things because it keeps us in power and that we get to control all branches of the government. We've lost the ability to, to negotiate. We've lost the ability to build relationships with people that don't necessarily believe in the same things that we do. You know, I have nothing against Republicans or independents. The, you know, when we walk every single day, we don't look at people and say, wow, you're red, you're purple, you're blue. We don't. Many times we're sitting at the dinner table with people that we never even realized we have different political views. But yet when it's an election time, this is what happens. We create a lot of division. And then as we get, you know, we get through the election, we continue to use our dominance in our government because we control all the branches to be able to promote our own agenda. 
And our agenda is just not helping people. It's broken right now. We keep putting things in front because that's what's being sparkly and shiny and new. And so we throw something at it and then we don't follow through with it. You know, I'll give you an example. The school to prison pipeline. It's a completely broken system. Our kids are not getting educated in the way that they need to. So what do we do? We keep raising taxes. Our budget can, continues to increase billions of dollars to be able to meet the needs of our children. And it's still broken. Still broken. Like a lot of people in education don't have money, though. That's one of the biggest concerns is they don't have money. Yeah. How do we fix that? Like, and I don't want like, yeah. if you don't have a simple answer. but No, I have a simple answer for that. Throw it yeah. at me. I have a simple answer is that we need to start being fiscally responsible with how we are using our money. Yeah. When we look at kids, this is what's so difficult for, for me as a father, that our kids have to fail for numerous years before they ever get any sort of help from our school system. You know, one out of five children have dyslexia. So many of our children also have ADHD, dysgraphia, other learning disabilities, but they have to consistently fail before they get any help. Why isn't it that we're not in the very beginning starting to do phonetic testing to identify our children who have a learning disability? Uh, no resources, no teachers, no, no funding, right? That's not the reason. What is it? The thing is, is that if we think about this, is it cheaper to deal with the problem before it gets worse? Uh -huh. So let me, let's say right now you cut your finger. Okay. Let's say we're going to have dinner. You cut your finger and you start bleeding and you leave it alone. You don't put a bandaid, you don't clean it. Right. If you cleaned it and you put a bandaid on it, what, maybe 10 cents. Right. Right. Now, all of a sudden you let that get infected. Now, all of a sudden, guess what? You got to go to the emergency room. They have to amputate. They've got to do all these things because guess what? You never took care of that open wound and you didn't take care of it for how long? Now you don't have a finger. How much money is that going to cost? A lot more if you didn't. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. <laughs> it's it's okay. thousands, yeah, right? Yeah, it's it's yeah. thousands okay. and thousands of dollars that it's going to cost you because you failed to address the problem. And it was just simply due to a simple cut, mm -hmm. right? Where in the beginning, it would have cost you 10 cents. And in the end, it costs you literally thousands of dollars. It's the same thing in our education system. If we give our kids the help in the very beginning up front, our money is going to go a lot further. But right now, we're drowning. We don't know how to get ourselves out of it. Our school system is buried because teachers have a 28 to 30 ratio. That's crazy. That is a lot. You know... Being a father of two, and when we all got home, you know, stuck at home being teachers, mm -hmm. you know, for all of our kids, right? Everybody around the world had to learn that. I could barely manage two kids. I could not imagine managing 30 kids and actually providing them an education. That's too many kids. On top of that, our teachers are overworked. They have to provide their own, sometimes their own equipment, they're constantly reinvesting in our children and they're provided with a little bit of support in order to be teachers in a classroom. Why isn't it that our schools are not set up like social service centers? 
Why don't we have more social workers there? Why don't we have behavioral health specialists there? Why don't we have um, outside contracts coming in that specialize in dyslexia or specialize in ADHD? Why isn't it that we're not set up that way? Because then that would allow teachers to actually teach and for kids to actually be supported instead of saying, you have to consistently fail before you can get help. Think about the trauma you have to go through as a kid knowing that no one is helping you. And even if you have extremely involved parents at home, they don't know how to teach you because they're not experts in teaching their own children how to overcome dyslexia or ADHD or dysgraphia or any other sort of learning disability. That in itself, if we just identified it earlier, would help everybody, which means our money would go a lot further. It's not rocket science. Why aren't they doing that now? <laughs> like, I, it, it, it seems very s- simple, and it just seems like a thing that we should have done. Yeah. And not even just for whatever party was elected prior. Like, why aren't the children being considered now? You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. I just feel like I, I do remember growing up in public school and I was like, man, this sucks. And I was one of those kids that failed. I failed mm-hmm. a lot. But nobody noticed until like the fourth or fifth time. Yeah. And then by then, I'm sure, like looking back on it now, I'm like, wow, that took a lot of time out of that person's day. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, that could have been used uh, more efficiently. Um so I guess now that if you, if you, if you handle that part of it, then you have other things like, where do you stand on? Like, I don't know. Let me throw another thing at you. Gun control. How do you feel about that? So with gun control, we have a problem with violence in our streets, but we also have people that are deathly afraid of losing their rights, their second amendment rights. Correct. You know, I own a gun. Mm-hmm. I use it for home protection and sometimes when I like to go to the gun range. You know, I do like to fire my weapon. But does that mean that I need to have an AK-47, you know, underneath my bed? No. And I don't think that people should have military-style weapons at home. Now, if, you know, people that like to hunt and like to actively shoot, that's not a problem. But I don't think, I don't know any hunter that hunts with an AK-47 or with an AR-15, right? There's mm-hmm. there's an art, there's a science to it. I believe that weapons should be registered. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that people need to be afraid of weapon registration. It's not going to help prevent crime, but it will help us to be able to, for law enforcement to be able to use those serial numbers in order to be able to trace those those weapons back. When we think about gun control, there's so much more that has to be a part of it. It's not a simple answer of just taking everybody's guns away. Right. The violence that we see is a, is a societal issue and our failure to educate our children. It's this uh, school to prison pipeline that we failed to address. It's the fact that we don't have um, the social services that we need in our community that actually help the lives of people that are stuck between a hard decision and another hard decision. There's too many people that as a police officer that I've arrested that committed a crime. I'll never forget this one woman. I think she touched me the most. She, she stole from, um, from a local um, outlet and they called me over and I talked to her and I said, what was going on? 
And she's like, you know, I took these items and, you know, they caught me red-handed. I opened up the bag and what did I see? All clothes for a four-year-old girl. Shoes, dresses, underwears, socks. And the owners were just livid. They, they wanted her arrested. You know, they were victims of a crime. Um, and they wanted, you know, charges pressed. And she admitted to the crime. And when I had the conversation with her, I said, why did you do this? She's like, it's my little girl's picture day. And I honestly don't have any real clothes for her. And she was begging me to please get her some new clothes. So she gets picked on because her clothes are usually dirty or ripped and I can't afford them. Um, or can I give my daughter this one day where I can give her this opportunity to actually look, feel pretty and take pictures? You know, as a police officer, I have that authority of whether I want to charge somebody or not. And I didn't charge her. And the owners were furious at me for not doing it. So I paid for her clothes Mm -hmm. and said, well, there's no crime now because the clothes have been purchased and I'm choosing not to arrest her. I gave her a ride home. She never committed a crime ever again, at least till the time that I left Arizona. And I would see her every now and then in the community. And she kept she would ask me, like, why did you do that? And she would ask me numerous times, why did I do that? Why did I do that? I said, because I don't know if I would have done anything different if I was in your shoes. She was placed between a rock and a hard place. And I don't think somebody should be penalized for that. That's a very, that, that pulls the heartstrings a little bit. That's, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a good story. <laughs> that's a really good story. Um, I guess where, that's just who you are though. Right. Like that's not even like a, a cop thing. That's not even like a any. That's just a you thing. So I think I mean, if anything. I feel we're more confident relating this back to your running. This is the type of person I want. Not. I'm mean, honest. I don't know anything about Kate Brown. I follow her on Instagram. I don't know anything about her. I don't know these things about her. That makes you different. Just talking to you for the last hour or so. I know a lot more about you than I did yesterday. And I think that's kind of where I'm at is you, what I'm seeing is you make people believe in you and you, you make people believe in what your, your ideas are. And we're only touching the surface here. This is just a little conversation. This is just a one hour conversation. Um, and you've already thrown out some good, um, some good ideas towards, you know, because uh, I, I want, I want, I do want to mention something about the the the, the gun the the gun rights, because um, you know people are going to throw that argument. But what if I'm an avid collector or something, or mm-hmm. what if I'm this and that, and, and and like me, I I I'm the same way. You know, I just recently um, took out my concealed weapons license because I was like I wanted to. I I started the hobby like a year and a half ago, and I wasn't. I never was owned one until I finally started picking up the hobby, and I love it. I think it's great. Uh, but you're right. I guess we don't need to hunt with an AK-47. But I mean, if you can, if I can register my AK-47, for example, and if I'm not doing anything bad, like you shouldn't have anything to worry about. If I'm just using it recreationally, you, there shouldn't be a problem. I guess I want to be one of those people that say I can't own an AK-47. 
but it's it, it's registered and you were saying that people fear that that process do you think it's mainly because they're doing shady stuff no i think because people think that well if i if i give you a little uh-huh. what else are you going to take yeah that it's only going to lead to us not ever owning guns oh like you're taking their rights away right okay you know it's one step closer <clears throat> for you to take my rights away mm-hmm. so i don't want to give an inch you know, what's unfortunate, though, in our society is that how many people need to die before we realize we have a problem with weapons in this country? How many kids, how many school shootings do we have to? Now, it's guns didn't create that problem, right? A gun doesn't pick itself up and start shooting kids in a school. Correct. Right. But we're not at the place right now in our society where we have responsible gun owners because these children that are purchasing these guns. We're not, not always purchasing these guns or getting these guns somewhere. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's usually from a family familiar that they're getting these guns. We do not have people that are responsible gun owners where children are getting these guns. We have failed to address their behavioral health issues. And now they're taking out their frustrations by taking those guns and going into schools and mass killing our own children. So I'm okay saying we need to register these weapons. We need to punish people that are not responsible gun owners that have allowed their children who have behavioral health issues, that they did not get them the appropriate support or that they did not lock up their weapons appropriately. I do feel that those parents need to be held accountable. So at least the way I'm comprehending this is that all these problems could have been avoided when they were 10 cents. Like you were mm-hmm. saying, when they were 10 cents, because right. now these things are big, mm-hmm. you know, school shootings. and everything. Like you, did you hear the other day with the downtown mall, that the shooting or whatever, right. or whatever happened? They, they made it seem like there was an active shooter. Right. The, the media was like, active shooter, active shooter. And then you just to come to find out it was just a couple teenagers or something. My understanding is, you know, don't quote me on this, but it was a couple teenagers acting up and, you know, not being responsible and acting out of pocket. Mm-hmm. Right. I guess that wouldn't have happened if we had that 10 cent education. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I guess so. It all leads back to that. Should that be the main focus of your campaign now is, is, is the 10 cent problems that we have? Well, there's a lot of 10 cent problems, yeah. right? Because these, all these situations are like really complicated, right? Like, well, cause people don't see the big picture either. Right. I didn't see the big picture until you explained it. Well, when you think about like the, our education system, right? Uh-huh. This is what we have traditionally done. Oh, my goodness. Our education system, it needs help. We're going to input all this money. We're going to raise taxes, blah, blah, blah. We've passed this. Yay for us. Look at what we've accomplished, right? But that doesn't fix all of our problems. There are other things that we need to continue to work on. You're in the medical field, Mm -hmm. right? Well, guess what? Right now, if you can't afford health care, too bad. Right. In the state, good thing we have options for Medicare, Medicaid. Um, But I think this needs to be the first state in the United States that, you know, we pass a single payer health care plan. It should be a right of every person to have health care. The reality is, is that we don't have to raise a single dime in taxes because what people don't understand is that the administrative services of running a health care system if we give health care to everybody, 
all of that expense actually covers the cost of our medical system. You see where I was going to go with that, though, yeah, right? Because, like, the first thing people go to mind is, like, they're ready to get a pitchfork and say, your uh, taxes increasing them. No. And that's what we were talking about earlier when we think about the education system. Mm-hmm. It's all in how we use the money. But what people don't understand is that with healthcare, it doesn't have to raise taxes. I want people to be healthy. I want people to be able to get behavioral health services. I want people to be able to get their annual checkup. I want people to be able in their elder years to be able to know that they can get the medical attention that they need, right? And not that it's going to bankrupt them or that they're going to get a no because they don't have any health insurance or their insurance plan doesn't cover that procedure and they're constantly in battle. That's not fair to anybody. We're, we're human beings. We deserve the right to be healthy and it shouldn't come at the expense of people being on a political side of the left or the right, because guess what? It affects all of us. Whether I'm a Democrat, an independent or a Republican, I should have be able to afford the right to actually go see a doctor and be able to guess what? Take a look at my cut finger before I have to lose it. Amazing. Amazing. We're winding down. Oh, we're winding down, guys. This has uh, been a very enlightening conversation. You you definitely um, made me a believer, so to speak. Because again, I was super against politics. It pisses me off when people talk about it. <laughs> um, and and it's just like maybe that's because I'm ignorant. But I try very hard to like really care about the community, and especially in the last five years. I think that's when I started caring about community issues because that affects me now. I'm 30 years old. In the universe, I'm still young. I'm just figuring out parenthood. That's the thing that's coming up. Uh, you know, financial freedom. That's the thing I'm figuring out. And then that's just within my own bubble. I'm starting to figure out the community, you know. And I guess just a couple more things before we wind down. I'm just very curious. How do you feel like with, you know, again, if you do make it into into office, uh, homelessness, how do you handle that? With, you know, Salem is notorious. I mean, Portland's pretty bad, but... Salem has been very notorious for the homeless situation. Um, and a lot of people would be pissed if I didn't ask about that. Because, uh, you know, a lot of their homes are right here, right here, right behind me. Uh, you know, a lot of the times, you know, when, you know, I would be watching TV, I'd be like, yo, guys, what do you want to watch? Like, we're, we're <laughs> watching this together. Y'all are my neighbors. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But as far as like letting like, you know, would I let a kid walk down the street at night? No, I can tell you that right now. Walk down the street. I will not let you walk down there, you know, by yourself. Because it's a little shady. By yourself, at least. You have pepper spray or something like that. Yeah. How would you handle that in a human way? Because it feels like I do care about humans, but how do you handle human rights to people who are not looked at as humans? Yeah. You know, it's interesting when we look at the homeless community Mm -hmm. or we think about our undocumented um, people here in Oregon, people here in Oregon value the treatment of a dog, of an animal, over the homeless population and over our undocumented population. True. Very true. And that's because we don't see people as people anymore. We see them as a problem that we have to solve. I will tell you that I have talked to many houseless um, individuals. I've sat in their tents with them. I've had conversations with them. They've even offered me drugs as, you know, (laughs) um, because we, we have this great conversation. Yeah. I don't see them as a problem. I see them as a solution. 
If you just go and we talk to them and we bring them to the table and ask them what it is that they want, trust me, they don't want to be where they're at. I haven't talked to one person that says, yes, I love my current situation. No, they don't know where to find the resources to get out. There's not any sort of system that helps people that are homeless transition effectively, just like our immigration system. There is not a way to transition people into being citizens, right? They have to hide in, the, in darkness. Same thing with our homeless population. We want them to be invisible or we want them just to get out of the way. And we keep pushing them and pushing them further and further and further out. It's not solving the problem. We're just okay with ignoring the problem. Mm -hmm. As long as it's not in front of us, when I have to go, get up and go to my Starbucks to get my coffee, I'm okay with that. As long as I don't have to see it. But where's the empathy when you actually have to go there, sit with them, talk to them, see that the food in their tent that they've been saving, because that's the only food that they have, that it's actually rot, rotting. Not all of them are, are addicted to drugs. Not all of them have behavioral health issues. There was things that happened in everybody's life that caused them to get there. So why don't we just bring them to the table? Why don't we make them part of the solution instead of us saying, we know what's best for you. We're going to build these units and all of you are going to be forced to live there. They just, it, it just sounds like they're supposed to be pushing them around. You know what I mean? Like pushing them, you know, what you, I'm sure, I don't know if the, how factual this is, but you know, they say like, Oh, they give them bus passes and send them to Eugene, send them to here and send them yeah. back and forth. And when I heard about this, I thought it was like a, a, a like just something you tell your friends, like a bar talk. And then when I found out how more plausible that was, I'm like, why is that a thing? Why is the thing just scooping things under the rug? I don't know. I mean, we can't fix every problem. I get that. But why is the solution to hide it? And why has that been the solution to hide it like that? Sweep it under the rug. I, I think it, if anything, I would hope it comes more to light. Um, well, that's one of the things, you know, when, when I become governor is to not, is to bring a plan forward that includes their voices in there. And from the voices that I've heard of so far, if they're going to move somewhere, they want to know, one, am I going to be safe? Mm -hmm. Do I have an option of where I get to go? Some people like to live in the outdoors. So why can't we make a secure location for them to be able to live in the outdoors? Right. But where they still have restrooms, where they still can get a hot meal, where they can still receive services, whether it's behavioral health, to be able to see a dentist, to be able to see um, their doctor. Right now, there's too many barriers. This is the thing. People don't understand what the, the social determinants of health is for them. When you think of somebody that's living under the bridge, right, how can they leave their tent to go anywhere when they're too afraid to leave because someone is going to steal their stuff? So how can they even go and get services from somewhere, right? But yet we yell at them because there's feces or there's urine in this location. Well, everybody locks up their restrooms and say, if you don't purchase something, you can't use our restrooms. So there's nowhere for them to shower. There's nowhere for them to go to the bathroom. There's nowhere that they can leave without coming back and not losing everything. But yet we consistently tell them, these are our expectations of what you need to do in order to be able to get out of poverty when they can't even leave their tent. The expectations we've placed on them is unreasonable. So what do we do? We give them a bus pass. 
Great. What is that going to do for them? Nothing. More than likely, they're going to probably trade it. And if you're addicted to drugs, guess what they're going to get? More drugs. Right. We haven't set them up to be successful. We put these little things in front of them and say, if you do this, you're going to be successful. We haven't addressed any of their needs. And then we ask ourselves, why is it that they're not moving? I guess it's crazy to think about too. Like, uh, so I have a Husky, uh, she's not here right now, but like I have a Husky and, uh, we walk downtown and, and we would go into certain restaurants, bull legit restaurants. She gets swaddled with love and they feed her right then and then they give her <laughs> yeah. full like meals and they give her, Oh my God, your dog is so cute. Can I give her this meal, this food, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, at the time I'm like, always like, sure, whatever, whatever. But then I think about it, I'm like, oh my God, my dog gets treated better than if a guy walks in and is like, hey, I need 10 cents or can I have your change or can I have your scraps? Nine out of 10 of them would be like, get out of here. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think it's when you put it in perspective like that, the fact that our dogs get treated a little better, which I see, I'm a dog person, dog lover, but I mean, it, it, I can see where there's that issue. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I guess I know I said, well, wind it down, but I have two more questions for you. Okay. Yeah. Before go ahead. Okay. Two, one of them is a selfish one and one of them is just uh, a more lighthearted one. Yeah. Okay. First question. Um, with the most recent years with Kate Brown, when she signed that bill for uh, undocumented uh, people to be able to get licenses again, mm-hmm. a lot of people in my family, other people's families love that, able to get things rolling for their lives and they didn't feel so trapped. Mm-hmm. In, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a place where they felt excluded. And I say selfish now because now I want to know, uh, based on our you know, community, our community like, has, like Latinos, how would, how would you keep that train going? How would you help benefit specifically, again, selfish question, how would you yeah. help benefit the Latino community, especially a lot of people are Woodburn, a lot of our undocumented folks who really really are scared to even think about politics because thinking they even walk to the courthouse to pay a bill they're going to get sent to mexico you know what i mean yeah they can't even you that fear how do we keep that ball that, that ball going that train going and how are you planning to improve on what was already established not much but how do you plan to keep that going yeah, you know, for the Latino population, I think what saddens me is the fact that we do li- we live in the shadows, mm-hmm. and oftentimes we are shy to speak up, and even if we ourselves are, you know, natural born citizens, we don't speak up because guess what? We know somebody in our family that is undocumented, and we don't want to bring any sort of attention. Mm-hmm. So we are pretty much thankful for what we have and we try not to complain and we continue to move forward. That's our culture. Mm -hmm. I don't want our culture to continue to live that way. I want, you know, this to be a sanctuary state. I, as governor, don't care whether you're documented or not. You need to be treated as a human being, as a person. You should have the same rights as anybody else. A lot of our Latino community do jobs that most people don't want to do. You know, working in a farm is not an easy task. Not at all. And there's not a lot of people that want to do that. So we should afford them the opportunity, whether documented or not, to be able to join unions. They should be um, treated with human rights. They should be paid appropriately. Um, When 
when someone has to go to the courthouse because they got a speeding ticket or something like that, their citizenship status shouldn't be questioned. You know, I don't walk around with my passport or with, you know, my birth certificate saying that I'm a natural born citizen of this place Mm -hmm. and neither should any other undocumented person. You know, the narrative, which has been a very political narrative, is that our culture, our community is that we're rapists, we're murderers, we're border jumpers, we're uneducated, we're just farm workers. That's been the narrative. And I think what's been, I think, challenging for me to see is that we have not fought back. We continue to stay quiet and we continue to stay in the shadows. What happened to the days where we'd march to the days where we demanded the change that was necessary and that we did not um, continue to ask for permission to be treated as basic, you know, as, as human beings. We've lost ourselves a little bit. And as a, as a Latino that's running for governor, I want us to stand up for what is right, regardless of whether we are documented or not. We all deserve human rights. We all deserve to be educated. We all deserve to be loved. We all deserve basic human needs. And that should not be taken away because the narrative is, the political narrative is, guess what? We're just troublemakers. We're just a bunch of machismo people that um, are very aggressive. That's not us. That's not our culture. Let's bring out the best in our people and let's put that out for display and let's stop living in the shadows. When you become governor, I'm now, now I'm starting to say it. When you become governor, will they let you? Will they just like, here's the position, now shut up? Yeah, so let me make this clear to everybody. When I'm governor, I will be the leader of the state and I will be the leader of the Democratic Party. I set the tone as the governor. I am the leader of the state and no one is just going to allow me to do things. I will do things within the capacity of the governorship that the law allows me to do. And I will hold everybody in my cabinet accountable to my, to the policies that we put in place and to all of the laws and anybody who does not abide by that will be punished by the law. I am not immune from it, nor is anybody else. So no one is going to tell me what I can and cannot do if it's in within my authority to do. And for the people that are locked into that, like other politicians, other politicians that are running, they are locked into those positions because they are in bed with wealthy people. I am not. No one is going to give me anything because no one has ever given me anything. Amazing. Like, mic drop. Like, that's perfect. Thank you. Uh, we can stop there. <laughs> no, I think that, 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 that kind of explained 100% what, what I wanted to know. Um, and I think you kind of set the tone again. I'm going to tell you again, you made me into a believer of what you had to say and you made me believe in your word. I don't feel like you're lying. I don't feel like you're a politician that's just giving me, you're not trying to shut me up. And I like that. And I feel like a lot of politicians just like, I don't hear what you have to say, but shut up. (laughs) Even if they're not even like, if they're just running, they just want to sugarcoat things. And I don't think that's where it should be. I think it should be real and it should stay real. And, and especially for our community, it should be real because it's not glitz and glamour it's a lot of ugly things and you have a, if when you get this position there's a lot of stuff you know you're gonna have to change right like there's a lot of stuff that's you know you're gonna have to handle you ready for that i'm ready for it i've been doing it i mean i would tell you that 
Whether it was being a Marine or being a police officer, I've seen the worst in people. People typically don't call 911 because they're happy to see me. Right. You know, seeing, you know, so I'm a father, right? I've seen what's so beautiful of bringing a life into this world. But unfortunately, I've seen the darkness of people's lives ending. There's a lot at stake. And I will tell you that for me, I want to make sure that uh, people are able to live the life that they want and they're provided with equitable opportunities to be able to do that because I've seen the darkness of this world and I don't wish that upon anybody. And uh, one last thing, more on a, light, on a lighthearted tip. Uh, I always ask this to people, with everything you're doing, what's good in your life right now? What's great in my life right now is I have a wonderful wife. I have two beautiful children that... Man, I got to tell you, everything that I do is for my kids. Like, I just, I love my kids so much. I love playing with them, being with them. I was telling you earlier, you know, I sit there, you know, even though I'm running for governor, no matter how hard and stressful job, you know, my work can be, um, I'm still sitting there playing Fortnite with them. Yeah. I'm still helping them with their homework at night. The best times, I think, out of the day are when we're winding down and we're typically laying in bed and we're just talking about our day and we're just laughing. Um, that's just the best part of, of my life right now. I just, I love my kids. I love my family. No matter what happens with all of this other stuff, I am just so lucky and blessed to have just this, this family that is irreplaceable. And on the last part, I just want you to do a bunch of shameless plugs. Where can we find you again? I want you to throw out any social, everything. I want you shameless plug i want everyone to know how we can find you because they just heard it over an hour of you telling not even like i guess it, I, I, my main goal was not to really get into the politics side even though we did talk about it i wanted to humanize you i want you're just again there's a, i've been talking to people for like hate ground six months to a year won't even give me the light of day um because they are here mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying and I, I guess i really hope that you know you stick to the the little guys here, you know, yeah. like the local guys here. Um, and so I guess if you can just give us shameless play, how can we can find you? Where can we get a hold of you? Cause you seem very accessible to the community. Yeah. Thank you for that. So, you know, go to my website, www.georgefororegon.org or, um, you can search me on Facebook and on Facebook, it's same thing. George Carrillo for Oregon. Um, also on, um, Instagram, uh, my handle there is George for Oregon and on uh, Twitter, it's at George for Oregon. Try to keep it all really consistent and really simple. I like that. Um, and like I said, there is my contact information, you know, more than just, you know, donations. Like I said, if, if people want to donate to the cause, great. Um, money is going back out into the community for, you know, for the donations the campaign receives. Uh, the biggest other piece of help is um, being able to volunteer, helping me pass the message along. You know, I want to say thank you to you because this is what it means about using your platform um, to do good, right? You're taking this opportunity where other people didn't give you the opportunity, you know, to, to put on your show and you're giving me that platform. You're sharing in your own power, um, you know, providing me with an opportunity to educate your listeners too. So I really appreciate you using your platform for good too. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. That really does. I really, I feel like I work hard for every little listener, you know, starting off from like the first 10 people to listen to like now being at like 5.6 thousand throughout each of like the different platforms. I'm like, I'm thankful for every single one of them. Y'all listen to me talk for an hour. Like y'all, like that's so (laughs) weird to me. Like you guys care what I have to say? Like, or even if you don't care, you're just here to hate on me. Like you listen for the whole episode. You know what I mean? So I think it's still kind of wild to me. I still don't, I still don't believe it half the time. Well, Um, I just want to say one last thing though. So, you know, during this time of the campaign, I was really fortunate to be able to meet some young artists and was really listening to what some of the challenges they are. Um, I've listened to their music. I loved it. And I said, okay, well, what can I do to help you? What is the problem with the system? And they were just telling me, you know, as young artists, you know, we just don't have the money to, to get shows, right? Like we have to pay promoters to get them to put us on the show. And I'm like, but you're the artist. Why are you paying them? They should be paying you. Right. And they're like, no, that's not the way it works. Right. And so I was like, that's really unfortunate. So I am using my platform. We are having an event on, um, on April 8th at stage 722. The place can hold 700 people. Please go to either my website or stage 722. Get tickets. They're $25. The ticket, the ticket sales are not going towards my campaign. It's going towards these four artists. Um, it's going to be a great show. Four wonderful artists that are going to be performing. The doors open at eight o'clock, and it's going to go till one o'clock in the morning. And Sold. So, I'm there. <laughs> so please come out, support. It, this is about supporting the community. It's not all about my campaign. It's really about these four wonderful artists. Amazing. Like that sounds like a. If anything, why not? Right. Like you guys heard that. You guys are around there. I know you guys are listening. Go ahead, do it. Um, thank, thanks for um, taking the time to come over and talk to me and having this great conversation. Again, I can't say it enough. I don't feel like I'm talking to a politician, <laughs> and I like the fact that you're just very down to earth. And I want to see more people like that in office when I see the, the the headlines on the news, and I want to see more guys like us out here, you know, the people in the trenches kind of doing it. Um, one last thing, where can, where can, when is the deadline? When can people vote? Where, how, if they don't know, What's your deadline? Yes. So how people, can they get you in office? Yeah. So people need to register to vote, mm-hmm. you know, so register to vote. You need to register before April um, 28th. The, the, um, the election is May 17th mm-hmm. On May 17th. We will know who the winner of the democratic party is. Um, so please vote. Understand that every vote counts. We cannot, um, not participate. We got to take some responsibility as, 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 um, people that are able to vote. And if you're not voting for me, that's okay. But vote no matter what, just show up and vote. I like that. Thank you guys for coming down again. 98.3 KMWV Salem's community radio station down the rabbit hole podcast on Apple podcast, Spotify. Now we're on iHeartRadio still. I don't know why they let me on there, but they let me on there and, and you guys are still listening. So again, thanks again. Uh, thank you again, George, for coming down and, and again, just enlightening me. I, I feel very enlightened right now and you inspire me. So thank you again. Awesome. Thank you.